Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, indeed we praise your name. We sing praises to you as the psalmist declares, Do not trust in princes or in human beings who cannot deliver. How happy is the one whose helper is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord. Father, our hearts are heavy. We have loved ones who are suffering. We think of Mandy. We think of those that are struggling emotionally in the midst of quarantines and isolation. We mourn with families today who lost loved ones who are serving us as a country, keeping us safe. We think of Christians and other American citizens stuck behind enemy lines the fear that must come over them. Haiti, picking up pieces, and how do you do that without financial means? The fear of hurricanes. Lord, all around us, the world seems to be unraveling, but we're reminded we can trust in you. You're the God who parts Red Seas. You're the God who calms the lions in the den. You're the one who was victorious over death. You are our God and our Lord, and we thank you. Fathers, we come to the text today. We're reminded once again how great you are, how deep the love is that you have bestowed on us, a people who do not deserve it. And so, Father, open our eyes to the text, move me out of the way, and allow the power of your word to speak mightily this morning as you promised it will. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn to Exodus chapter 19, if you would. This is where we are. Frank Franks, we have praying for Jackie and, and Frank with their daughter moving so he couldn't pray this morning and then... Uh, Ron said, hey, I can't pray. We've, we've been loosely exposed to COVID, so we can't come. So our, our bulletin today, just disregard the order of service, right? So I'm going to read the text for us this morning in Exodus chapter 19. And let me just, if you've just joined us, we've been walking through the life of the Israelites as they've left Egypt and we've been journeying through. And, and this really is the climax. This is the, the high point, no pun intended, as we come to Mount Sinai in Exodus. It's what they've looked to. It's what God promised to Moses, didn't he? In Exodus 3 at the burning bush. What did he tell him? He says, surely I will be with you and this will be a sign that I have sent you to the Israelites when you, Moses, bring the people out of Egypt. And notice what he says, watch the pronouns, you and they will serve me on this mountain. And this is where we've come to, from chapter 3 all the way to 19. <clears throat> and it states in verse 1, in the third month after the Israelites went out from the land of Egypt... On the very day that they came to the desert of Sinai, after they journeyed from Rephidim, they came to the desert of Sinai, and they camped in the desert. Israel camped there in front of the mountain. It says in verse 3, Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain. There will be a series of events where Moses comes up and down the mountain as God reveals this covenant, this Mosaic covenant, as it's commonly referred to, that God is making with his people, the Israelites. 
And it's a, we're going to end our series on Moses today. We're going to resume Luke next week, but it's fitting that this is the, the climax of our study of the book, or of the life of Moses. It says, Thus you will say to the house of Jacob and declare to the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt. Well, he decimated them, right? I did that to Egypt and how I lifted you up on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And now if you will diligently obey and keep my commandments, then you will be my special possession out of all the nations for all the earth is mine. And you will be my kingdom, my priest, a, a holy nation. These are the words that you will speak to the Israelites. So Moses came and he summoned the elders of Israel. He set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has commanded we will do. Unfortunately, when we get to Exodus 32, they've blown it. So hurrah, glad that you're, you're there. But we're going to see that will wane. But at the moment they said, yes, we'll obey. And so Moses brought the words of the people back to the Lord. If you have a sermon outline and taking notes, you can follow along here as we travel through this, this text. But again, this is the apex of, of all that we've seen here in this journey from the departure out of Egypt until now. One commentator states, it marks the achievements of God's plan to save a people for his glory. And rehearsing the past, which the, the Lord does in the first couple verses, he briefly rehearses what he's done for them. It indicates not only his love and his purpose for them, as we're going to see, but desire that he has for a holy nation, a people will, who would exalt his name on the earth in other words, you could argue up to this point, it wasn't about the 10 plagues. Oh, they were glorious, frogs and all, right? Uh, it, it wasn't about the freedom from slavery. That's how horrific that situation was. Or the crossing of the Red Sea or, or the various trials in the journey. The point of this entire deliverance, it's about the Lord. It's theocentric. It's about God, his, sought, his desire to have a people who will worship him. I love what one commentator states, it, was just getting, it, it wasn't just getting Israel out of Egypt, it was about getting Israel into a closer relationship with God. Salvation is never in and of itself. God didn't extend salvation to you so you have fire insurance. Right? That, that's, there's something far greater. And what God is longing is for a relationship with you. He, he's, he's longing for uh, you to glorify him. That's what he is seeking. And that's what he's desiring of the Israelites. Yeah, he was going to discipline Pharaoh and the Egyptians for their arrogance and their unwillingness to bow their knee before him. But the grander scheme was that he has a people who will exalt his name. So let's go to the text and let's look at this. In the verses 1 and 2, as we stated, it... it, it, it it gives us a bit of a travel log here. Uh, where exactly is Sinai? Scholars debate. And there is some confusion even as to the time frame. Uh, one uh, commentator states it looks like it is a two-month period. And that's what most scholars think. This has been a two-month journey that has brought us to this point. What's more interesting, according to Numbers 10, they will be at the foothill of this mountain for an entire year. 
So it took us two months to get here, and now we're going to spend some time just with God. He's been fine-tuning, he's been honing them, and bringing them to this point so they're ready to receive. And again, it, it, this is more than a travelogue, it, it, because the two verses are rehearsing what God has done. So if we were to flip through the travel scrapbook that they printed off on Shutterfly, you're going to see several things, right? You're going to see amazing provisions. You're going to see indescribable victories. But most importantly, you're going to see God's presence. And God is rehearsing that for them. I was the one. Did you catch the number of first-person singular pronouns through this? I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt. You were my people. And so the Lord is going to reiterate that time and time again. In verses 3 through 6, God is going to kind of rehearse the past, the present, and even the future with his people. It's interesting, there, there appears to be what we call a chiastic structure. You say, well, what is that? Well, kids, listen up, because you teenagers, you'll be asked this in your uh, language lit class, right? A chiastic structure where there's a mirror image. Something is stated at the beginning. In this case, in verse 3, it's the Lord says, command Moses to speak this to Israel. It will end with that in verse 6. Look at the text. Don't look at me. The text says, and, and these are the words that you will speak to the Israelites. So that book ends this, what we call, again, an inverted structure. The, the focal point of a chiastic structure is the center. And in this case, it's in chapter 5, or excuse me, verse 5. 19.5 says, and if you will diligently obey me and keep my commandment. That is the thrust of all that God is going to have to say here to the Israelites. In fact, if you look at the implications, the first is, as we just see, there's an emphasis on obedience. The Lord is going to highlight that here in these few verses. Secondly, as we just stated, that section begins and ends with a call to speak to Israel. Third, did you catch the personal relationship God has with his people? That, that's stressed here. He alone takes the, the initiative. They didn't come to him. He brought them out. He brought them to the mountain. And finally, which I love, is the Lord is communicating in a, in a language they understand. Isn't it great that God reached down and communicated to us so that we might understand? So much so that Paul will state, or Peter states in Acts chapter 2, we can know this with certainty. No, there's things we can discuss. There's things that are difficult. Even Peter said that later of Paul's writings. But to know that Christ rose from the dead, that he is virgin born, the, the, what we call the, the essentials of the faith, Peter says you can know that with certainty. In a world that applauds doubt, in a postmodern world we live in, the scriptures teach, no, 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 you can know this with certainty. In fact, you have a very sadistic God, don't you, who's going to, if we can't know with certainty, he's going to hold us accountable eternally for these things? That, that's an evil God, isn't it? He expects us to know these things. He's going to hold us accountable. And as he delivers this, this law to the Israelites, he, he's expecting them to comprehend fully what this entails as he lays this out. And I love, in the midst of this, I love the image in verse 4, don't you? This eagle wings that's brought you out, who's, it not only indicates protection, but also care and provision. 
This imagery is used later in Deuteronomy 32. Listen to the words of Deuteronomy. It says, He, the Lord, found him, that is Israel, in a desert land. In the howling waste of the wilderness, he encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on the pinions or the outer part of the wing. This is the one who provides. The same imagery is used later to refer how God brings them out of Babylon. He's the eagle that, that soars, that brings them out in, in Isaiah chapter 40. The idea to carry is interesting because it's the same term used in Isaiah 46. In Isaiah 46, the Lord declares, the idols, the gods of Babylon, they are carried about. They are a burden to the weary. <laughs> Your idols, you got to carry them around. Our God, he carries us. Isn't that great? We carry our burdens. Those that worship idolatry, your, your burdens, you carry but what does the Lord say? Come to me, cast your cares on me. Let me carry your burdens. That's our Lord, and what a contrast. I love A.W. Tozer. He writes, the sovereign God wants to be loved for himself and honored for himself, but that is only part of what he wants. Tozer goes on to write, the other part is that he wants us to know that when we have him, we have everything. It has been a journey for those Israelites. They have lacked food, they've lacked water, they've been attacked by a nomadic group that are known as being ruthless, and God has sustained them, and he's brought them here, he says, I did this for you. I am your eagle that, that has gone before you and carried you. And so, he says in verse 5, if you will diligently obey and keep my commandments, you will be, and I love this, my special possession. Earlier in 3 and 4, he's talked about what he's done for them. Now he's going to talk about what they need to do for him. And that is and who they are. One is, he says, you are mine. I love the pronoun there, indicating that personal relationship. And he says, you're my special possession out of all the nations. The preposition here is, is indicating that he has chosen them out of a group. From all the people's. One common stater states, states that the obsession with Israel being special is the most flagrant sign of Yahweh's parental narcissism. Isn't that great? I remember at graduation from college, uh, a friend of mine, his, his, his mother, uh, she, she loved my friend. <laughs> and at graduation, they made it very clear you're not to hoot or holler or, or clap when the names are read off because that distracts from the others. And at a Christian school, that was pretty much observed until my friend's name was read. And an audience of several thousand, and you could even still hear it on the videotape that was made for the graduation, she yells, that's my son! <laughs> that's what God does for us. That's my child! And I love them dearly, isn't it? I have called them... 
The purpose then of offering this covenant with Israel, keep in mind, this isn't to make them God's people. He already told, the, in fact, it's saying several times in Exodus, we saw in chapter 3, he said to Moses, they are my people, you're bringing them out. So why the covenant? Why this offering? It's an opportunity to enter into a new relationship. Uh, we're upping the ante, so to speak. This is what now as we have greater relationship, God speaking to the Israelites, here's some things that I'm going to require of you. Here's what I want to see us do. A covenant is a means by which two parties enter into a new relationship with each other, or more often a covenant elevates to a more intimate, dynamic level at an already existing relationship between two parties. Think of the marriage covenant, right? The marital vows and, the, and how you're brought into a new level. This new relationship would ensure grace, mercy, joy, peace, and ultimately life for God's people. The Lord brings them to this point and he says, you are mine, I have called you. In fact, he says, of all the nations, for I love this next line, for all the earth is mine. Exodus cannot be stripped from Genesis. Its relationship, one scholar writes, to Genesis is especially important. Exodus must be interpreted as the second chapter of a drama that began in the book of Genesis. This means, at least, that the themes of creation, purpose, and universal design are set forth in, by the Genesis narrative are seen through the book of Exodus as we read. Indeed, God's redemptive activity on behalf of Israel is not an end in itself. It is in the service of the entire creation. Why is he called Israel? One of the reasons is that they might bless the earth. God's initial exclusive move is, I would argue, for the maximus, maximal inclusive end. Creation, think about this, creation becomes an underlying bedrock for our theology, doesn't it? Don't miss this. I mean, whether it's gender issues, genetics, human sexuality, the role of men and women, it doesn't go back to the fall, Genesis 3. It goes, Paul, when he, he argues about the role of women or he, he argues against homosexuality, he takes us to Genesis 1. This is God's order. This is how God has designed it. Well, I don't like that. Well, <laughs> take it up with God. This is how he's orchestrated these things. Issues of who we are, male, female, issues of genetics. All of this goes back to Genesis. And we see this here in Exodus. As, as the Lord states to the Israelites, yeah, I pulled you out of the nations, but please remember, all of this is mine. Now he says three very important things about the Israelites. Don't miss this. First of all, he says, you're my treasured possession. The term is used throughout the Old Testament to speak of royal property. <laughs> You belong to the king. There's what they call the lamellic handles in pottery. Archaeologists love finding these. They've got a stamp. It's actually of an eagle, which is interesting. And it says lamellic to the king in the Hebrew. And Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, stamped the handles of jars to indicate what is inside the grain, the oil. It belongs to me. It belongs to the government. And that was to make provisions for when they were sieged, etc. And so these are called lamellic handles. And, and the Lord's saying, you belong to me. You're my possession. 
And that means you are unique and you are very special. I mean, think about it. <laughs> That's the Lord who has everything saying you're special to him. That's amazing. And as a believer, we're going to get there. He says the same thing to us. And interesting, the phrase treasured possession is always coupled in the Old Testament with holiness. They go hand in hand. Why? Think about this for a minute. If you're a unique possession and you, you have no holiness, then you have lawlessness. I can live however I want. If we focus on holiness and not on the unique possession, now we have legalism. And so the two must go hand in hand. You can't, you know, it'd be like Nellie Olson and the Little House on the Prairie saying, well, you know, my parents own the mercantile, so look out, right? I'm big stuff. For those going back to the Little House on the Prairie, right? <laughs> Showing my age. <clears throat> da, 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 da. Yes, yes, we all know it. And that's the problem. Nellie understands she's special in the family, but she's forgotten holiness. And, and the two have to go hand in hand. And that's what we see here. And so first, the Lord says to the Israelites, you are my treasured possession. Now keep in mind, this is the same group who's been complaining the whole time. Right? I would have zapped them at Rephidim. And yet God has wooed them. He says, you're my treasured possession. Furthermore, he says, you are a kingdom of priests in verse 6. Now, this does not eliminate the Aaronic line, the, the high priestly line through Aaron, uh, far from it. What it is indicating that Israel is, first of all, they're called to serve and worship the Lord. And secondly, they serve as priests to the world. In other words, they, they draw one's attention to God. And so he says, you are a, a royal priesthood. You're a kingdom of priests. And think of Genesis 12, all peoples of the earth is what the Lord says to Abraham, will be blessed through you. And, and we have been blessed, haven't we? Because who's our Messiah? He's Jewish. He's from this line of Judah. And so we're treasured possession. They're a kingdom of priests. And 30 says of the Israelites, you will be a holy nation. Often we translate holy as being pure, and that's really an unfortunate rendering of Kadosh. kadosh. The, the holiness really is indicating someone that is devoted or consecrated, and that's clear here in this context. In other words, Israel's not only been set apart from other people, which he's already highlighted, but they are there to serve. That is their role, that is their purpose. The underlying question, of course, should be asked and is often asked, why did the Lord prize the Israelites? The Nazi party tried to redo this whole section, did they not? No, 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 the Old Testament's irrelevant, you, you've missed the point. But why did the Lord prize the Israelites? Why is this so significant? Deuteronomy 7, I was not it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. This is Deuteronomy 7. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. Wow. 
and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from Pharaoh the king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him, those who keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to those who hate you and destroy you. He will not be slack and to those who hate him he will repay you shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command to you today. Why did God choose Israel? Because he loved them. Later in Isaiah 49, he says to the Israelites, I will make you a light for the Gentiles so that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And in John 4, salvation is from the Jews. No wonder Satan throughout history has sought to destroy this people group. I mean, think about it. The Jewish people have maintained, for the most part, their identity. I mean, find me a Hittite today. Find me a Malachite. You won't find one, right? The Jewish people have maintained their identity despite having been persecuted far more intense than I would argue any people group on this planet. Why? Satan would love to eliminate them. They're God's people. He chose them. God owes us no explanation, and he certainly doesn't owe an apology. He is God. Who has known the mind of the Lord? And in his grace, he called this people to bless this globe. And he sets this covenant with them, this which if we were to read on in Exodus, that is spelled out. We get the Ten Commandments, for instance, part of that, Mos what we call the Mosaic Covenant. And he says in verses 7 and 8, well, we find Moses coming and delivering the message of this call to obedience. Sadly, the Mosaic Law ultimately cannot be fulfilled. What the Mosaic Law showed is that they needed a Savior. We cannot be perfect. And it can only happen when God changes a heart. And that leads us to some principles here. So I want to just tease out three things for us sitting this morning. Okay, I, I'm not an Israelite. We do have, we are blessed to have a few uh, ethnic Jews in our midst, and that is fantastic. Thank you for allowing us to be grafted in. I guess you didn't really allow us. God did, but uh, thank you for blessing us. But for all of us sitting here, what does this mean? So let's move from Mount Sinai and let's move to Mount Calvary. And I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 1. I want you to see because Exodus 19 is referred to in the New Testament. And it's very significant why it does this. So turn to Ephesians, if you would, Ephesians 1. We're going to start at verse 3, but the first principle in your notes as you turn, is if we're struggling with feeling unsatisfied or unfulfilled, reflect on the fact that if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior today, you are his treasured possession. You say, why did he choose me? I don't know why he chose me. 
That was God's grace, his mercy. Ephesians 1, though, states, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places or realms, even as he chose in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Remember the meaning of holy. It's not just purity. It's being set aside, devoted, committed. He predestined us as adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. This is why if you're sitting this morning you think, hey, I'm a good person, that won't cut it with a holy God. You're still a sinner. I mean, you can make a pizza. You put dog food on one slice of it. I'm not eating your pizza, right? That's the idea here. According to the riches of grace, which he's lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Think about what Paul is saying to the church at Ephesus. For those of us who know Christ as our Savior, we are his treasured possessions. And think of the implications. Number one, I was just thinking through, writing a few things down. Number one, God cannot love you more than he already loves you. Hang that on your beak this morning. Think about that. Mull over that. God cannot love you more than he already loves you. Yes, he can be disappointed with sin. Yes, there are consequences for sin. But God's love does not waver. And my kids can blow it. Doesn't change my love for them. Am I disappointed at times? Sometimes, not always. They're, they're good kids. They're still sinners saved by grace, right? God loves us not because of who we are, but because of who he is. Did you catch that? Jonathan Edwards, the president of Princeton Seminary, years gone by, he writes, resolve to examine carefully and constantly what that one thing in me is which causes me in the least to doubt the love of God and to direct all my forces against it. Hear what he's saying? What is it that makes you question God's love for you? You need to go fast and hard after that because the Lord has stated, don't question the Lord. He's put his reputation on the line. He did it with Israel. He's doing it for you. He says, I love you. You are my treasured possession. Isn't that awesome? Secondly, the reliability of God's promise of grace to us is only as great as the extent of his sovereignty. Good news. He's sovereign. He told the Israelites, the whole earth is mine. (laughs) I can take out the Amalekites. I can take out the Egyptians. I can provide you birds coming out of the sky and give you, whatchamacallit, on the ground, whatever you need. I can take care of you. What is that to me? I am the sovereign God. I created all of this. And third, the Christian walk is based on an outgrowth of gratitude and love. Christianity is not about a do's and don'ts. Young people catch that. It's not about, I do X, Y, and Z. We love, not out of guilt, not out of the desire to earn God's grace, because we do what we do because he loves us dearly. That's Christianity. And so what do you see in those three points? You see a solution to doubt, you see a solution to fear, and you see a solution to guilt, don't you? And so Paul says, you are his treasured possession. If you know Christ is your savior, I mean, this morning, that that should make your socks roll up and down, right? That's just awesome. Secondly, 
Under the new covenant, what's the new covenant? Well, the Mosaic covenant was a call to be holy, but it couldn't be done ultimately because you needed a savior. The new covenant is wrapped up in what Christ has accomplished for us. And he is calling us to be holy and it can be accomplished because Christ's righteousness is, is put to our account through the indwelling of the power of the Holy Spirit. And so this new covenant, we are called to live holy lives. Compromising behavior, as I put in your notes, half-hearted devotion, a laissez-faire attitude toward the spiritual walk was and is unacceptable. One theologian writes, the law was given to teach sinners their sin. The law able to condemn but unable to save. Faith is always the, the, the re, what is required for salvation. And it was in the Old Testament, the law never saved, it was through faith. It's true in the New Testament. It says, as unable to save, sends the convicted sinner looking for salvation in the only place it can be found. It sends it to Jesus Christ, who is as perfect law-fulfilling life and perfect law-fulfilling death, gave himself to redeem helpless sinners. This is why Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, but you are a chosen race. Sound familiar? A royal priesthood, a holy nation of people for his own possession. He's quoting from Exodus 19. The church does not replace Israel, but the church comprises both Jews and Gentiles as it enjoys a unique status in God's timetable. He says that you may proclaim, listen to what he, 1 Peter writes, the excellence of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's chosen people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Here, Peter's quoting from Hosea chapter 1, that we are God's people. We are under his care. We are under his provisions. And so, when the world seems to be spiraling out of control, <clears throat> or you're struggling in a marriage, or with a loved one, or whatever the case may be, remember who you belong to. The guy who parted Red Seas the God, I should say, not to show disrespect. The God who parts the Red Seas, the God who provides provisions, the one who promised to be the good shepherd to walk through the valleys. That's our God. And this is who we are because of his love for us. We are a treasured possession. We are a holy nation and, and a priest. And with that comes in, in letter C of your notes. We have the opportunity of being a blessing to the light, uh, as a light to the nations. The Lord didn't save you so you can gloat. <laughs> That's Paul's warning to the Jews in Romans 9 through 11. The Lord did not save you so you could coast along. He didn't save you so you could hoard all these blessings and not share them or that you might misuse them. He saved you so that you might glorify him. And so when you're walking through the checkout line, I mean, I don't know how many times this week I've heard despair, last, lack of hope, frustration, anger. You hear it everywhere you go, don't you? It's, ah, let me tell you about Jesus. <laughs> let me tell you about the hope that we have in Christ. 
Robert Munger states, evangelism is the spontaneous overflow of a glad and free heart in Jesus Christ. This is who we are in Jesus, aren't we? We are a treasured possession, we are a holy nation, and we are royal priests because Christ loved us so. He called Israel and he has called us. J.I. Packer, the quote at the bottom of your notes, exalting Christ then by worship, witness, and service as the main focus of our uplifting the triune God should be our constant aim. Failure here means missing the path of holiness for a life commitment, deliberate, zealous, and daily renewed to glorify the Lord Jesus and this dedicated basis of holiness. Yeah. Praise God from whom all blessings flow that he would call us. And we have the opportunity to share the hope, the peace, the joy that comes because we are his. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for Exodus 19 and how in time and space you called the Israelites. You preserved them because out of them comes our Messiah. Out of them comes the blessing upon the globe. And we thank you. And in this new era, you have called a group of people your own in the church. And Lord, we thank you. It's not, again, something that we just sit back and, and relish. We, we need to be sharing that. We need to, to be good, faithful stewards of, of what you have so lavished upon us. Lord, thank you. Thank you for loving us before we even loved you. Thank you for loving us beyond a love that we could not even fully comprehend. Thank you for loving us so much that you gave your son to die on a cross for our sin. And thank you for loving us so much that you are preparing a place for us that we could dwell in your presence for all eternity. What a day. Lord, help us to be true followers of you that reflect well that we are your treasured possession, that we are a holy nation and we are a royal priesthood. In Jesus' name.